you can do tempo runs. You can do, for some guys, walking on a treadmill, gymnastics. That's why I like the long extended warm-ups with our kids because it's going to give them that aerobic stimulus because they're constantly moving. And it's play that you and I would have gotten as youngsters that we get now maybe probably four to five hours a week of that type of work through non-program work. So there's a lot of different ways that you can get it. And then you have to test the athlete to see if it's improving. That was Mark McLaughlin. And welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. It's great to have you here. As I mentioned, our guest is Mark McLaughlin. He is a physical preparation coach with a diverse background who has trained hundreds of athletes from Olympic to grade school to special forces. He's worked with professional organizations such as the NFL, Major League Baseball, NCAA, and others. And he's currently the strength coach for the Lake Oswego School District in Oregon. On this episode, Mark will be speaking on his physical preparation process, covering many ends of the spectrum. On one end, we'll be looking at his developmental process, so how he structures athleticism, such as gymnastics and rhythm-based work within his warm-ups. And on the other end, we'll be getting into the process of sports mastery through constraints, and then leading into a little bit more of a technical side or the technical side of things, speaking on heart rate and aerobic training, talking about some of the key markers that he uses for tracking the aerobic system, as well as the importance of aerobic development to recover from sport movement, explosive training. And if you've heard other coaches who have spoken about Mark and the athletes he's worked with, Mark gets results. And you can tell just how deep Mark's knowledge goes through listening to this podcast. It was really fun talking to him on almost, you could call it the full spectrum of development from more of that pedagogical, motor learning, developmental side into a little bit more of the technical key performance indicator and that structural element of things. And before we get to the episode, I just wanted to highlight our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want a free bag of one of their flagship products, Pine Pollen, you can go to justflypinepollen.com and you can get your free product there with only the modest and normal cost of shipping. I uh, absolutely love Lost Empire. They have been a staple in my supplementation regime for years now. And it's an awesome alternative to the typical, you could just call it more processed, more manufactured type supplement. I've gotten great effects on the level of energy, strength, and overall well-being from using the Lost Empire Herbs products. Some of my favorites other than Pine Pollen are things like Shiliagit or their Phoenix Formula. And again, if you're interested in trying out Performance Herbalism, you can get that free bag of Pine Pollen at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get on to the episode with Mark McLaughlin. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. I'd like to get started by just sharing a little bit about the diversity of the groups that you work with. I think you know, a lot of people work with, depending on your setting, right? One or two or maybe many sports, but it sounds like you have quite the diversity amongst groups that you train and work with. Yeah. So at the high school in the district I work in, I have, I have football at one school. I have boys and girls basketball, boys and girls lacrosse. I have dance team. I have cheerleading. I have alpine skiing, baseball, softball. And then I also work with fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. So it um, each day I'm I'm challenged with with a lot of different sports and a lot of different you know levels of athletes that I need to adjust to to give everybody the the best experience that that we can possibly give them. Yeah, when I think about like sports performance, strength and conditioning, whatever the 
you know, the term, whatever the term is, uh, I, I do think right. about that. G, you know, we think about GPP or general. And I, we were even chatting about this a little bit before we push record is in some ways, if you only work with one population, I think sometimes you can almost dig so far, like you, you dig really far in a little, little small nuances. But at the same time, sometimes it's so much easier when you just w- start working with another sport, another population, and it gives you a new insight, a new window to really how the whole system works or even, you know, youth up to pro or anything like that. And so I'd be curious, particularly what you've been learning too, from working from some of the sports that most of us don't work with, like alpine skiing or dance or something like that, or you, you said cheerleading as well. I'm curious what yeah. you've learned from working with some of those sports that are a little bit different in terms of your perspective on the total process. Yeah. So, so like alpine skiing. So, you know, I think it was two or three years ago, I saw this video about the attacking Vikings, which is the Norwegian national team. You know, that's, that's kind of their, their nickname for the group. And then, you know, they had a whole video on, on their testing and they call it the Ironman testing where they have, I think seven or eight events over the day. And I'm like, man, the video is so cool. And you know, I can't even stand up on skis, but I watched <laughs> that video and I'm like, oh my God, man, I, I wish, you know, I could do that or be part of that. And so when I got the opportunity to work with the ski team at the two schools I work with, like I just dove head into like, okay, how did those guys train? How did they come up, you know, with the testing? You know, what was the science behind it? And so I started integrating those tests for the junior skiers with the group that I was working with. So, you know, I had some special testing devices built that the Norwegian group used. And so it just, as a coach, it just gave me a new insight into what that sport demanded because it's totally different than, than any other sport that you would train. And then just started building these programs to help those skiers become physically fit for their sport. And so then I posted some videos on Instagram and this guy by the name of Tyler Walker said, Hey man, I used to uh, coach uh, strength and conditioning in Colorado. I worked with downhill skiers and he's a good skier himself. So then I started sending him videos of the skiers I was working with skiing. And so him and I developed this relationship where he's like my ski mentor for the physical training. So then I started learning all of these other nuances with this sport that I never would have learned about. And, you know, dance is the same thing. Like their events last two minutes, but they're hitting heart rates of 200. I mean, I've had heart rate monitors hmm. on them where they're hitting 200 beats per minute. And then putting those on the girls and then having them do the routine. And from a subjective point of view, you're looking at them thinking, okay, they're not going hard, but then talk to them after that two minutes is up. And they're like, oh yeah, man, we're, we get so psyched up, you know? So it's this psychological Mm. driver of the heart rates. Okay. Well then we need to train them differently to maybe not have a, a such a large stress response or when that stress response happens to be able to perform under those circumstances. So 
those are some just some of the few highlights of it's like and then as a coach and on a selfish level i just learned so much more and the art of it and all my passion even comes even further yeah it's interesting with the dance like so basically you're saying that for the actual physical work they're doing their heart rates maybe shouldn't be quite that high it's just because like the music and the intensity and the environment the psychological piece of it too is really spiking that sympathetic response even beyond what it typically should be is is what you're saying yeah it's interesting yes so i did a lot of subjective (laughs) questioning after that because i needed to understand more like what is that sport like what does it entail and the school that i'm at like they're the best in the state and one of the best teams in the country so the um the stress to perform each event so to speak at such a high level was driving their fear of failure Hmm. and the fear hey this thing is going to be super hard so kind of putting them into these situations more often to allow them to get used to it and then you know training the aerobic system because then i read some papers on dance so kind of understanding you know okay what kind of base fitness do they need to have in order to withstand these high pressure situations yeah it makes me think a little bit about one i liked using if the group i'm working with is into it (laughs) using like music and rhythm in conjunction with basic exercises like Paul Cater, who's mentored me in a lot of that stuff, has he'll use like a you know the typical speed ladder, but he'll have people do the patterns to music just to kind of attune attention and really drive that. He calls it that tuning as well, where you're kind of tuning the body, the muscle, the tendon up, if you will. But I find that athletes, when you do that kind of warm up, if I test like a counter movement or an RSI after like a rhythm type warm up, compared to if we did it without, they jump a lot higher <laughs> if we do the rhythm aspect before. And I think about it just maybe there's that just general sympathetic response too to having music to turning things into more of a dance in general like based off what you're saying i was just curious you know I, i'd imagine the heart rates are higher it's like motivating it kind of probably reduces the perception of how hard you're working too perhaps yeah and if, i mean if you look at uh like the athletic skills model group you know they're the ones that developed you know the iax training system like in the you know late 90s they use rhythm and dance as a big part of their development program and i actually use our dance team to teach our football players how to dance nice because it gets them out of their comfort zone it's something that they normally don't do and to your point it's a rhythm thing and and sport and movement is rhythm and we get a lot of these guys that oh yeah man they run a four three or they bench you know 900 pounds or whatever but the fluidity of movement, the athleticism, I guess, if you want to call it, isn't there. And so how do we continue to push the boundaries for these athletes to give them that rhythm? So training with music is a big thing. Gymnastics is a big thing. Dance. I mean, there's simple dance and foot movements that we do as part of the warm-up with all the kids. And then it's going to force them to think and to you know, learn a new skill. And so I think the more skills and diversity I can give them, they will perform better. But then is the chance of injury going down because they're moving through a bunch of different movement skills. Yeah, I I love that. I would love to see a video of the dance team teaching the football team some basics of rhythm. It reminds me too. Oh, yeah. If you have it, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, anybody who trains young kids should, you know, research the athletic skills model. You know, I watch a bunch of videos from like early 1930s and 40s, like East Germany and, you know, how they're kind of teaching their athletes, the gymnastic movements and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, what we're doing is not new. It's, you know, it's hundreds of years old, but these kids aren't exposed to it. And then the podcast you had with Randy Huntington, I believe Randy spoke about kids not having, you know, a lot of PE classes nowadays. So I think, okay, should my training at some point be a big PE gymnastics class? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I jumped in there. But I was just going to say that uh, it is so interesting, too, to look at, well, one, like working in track and field, like working in club track, the kids who had gymnastics backgrounds were always the fastest to learn different skills. And they just had really good overall athleticism. But even with the rhythm piece, Paul Cater had said, and, and I, I can totally see this, is that the athletes who were the worst at the rhythm, like, all right, we're going to do music and you're going to go through the ladder on this particular rhythm or whatever it was that he was having them do, is the athletes who were the worst at that, who didn't have a rhythm, I guess, or whatever term you want to put in there, they were the ones actually more likely to get injured. Like he could see at least visibly a trend where if someone didn't have a rhythmic basic rhythmic ability that it's going to put them at a, a potentially higher risk of injury. And I do think about, well, like even injuries, it's just little mistimings. You know, it's not like, I don't think it's so much of a global maybe issue on the, on the, maybe on the micro level as it is a muscle just didn't fire when it was supposed to, you know, it's a, it's a timing issue. And obviously there's some readiness <laughs> associated with that as well, but at the, at its core. And I think about that as well. I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any take on that with rhythm and, and injury. I don't think there's been any research or anything like that. But And then I was going to say too about uh, there's, there's been several, at least on the women's side, track and field athletes who have reached a high level who have a dance background. I know Valerie Allman, the discus throw is one. And I think there's been a couple others. It's just, it's really cool to see the way that they move through that. I've had a couple of podcasts talking about Irish dance as well. Sorry, I'm just kind of shooting a lot. I was going to ask, <laughs> I was going to ask you about the if you have any thoughts though on fluidity and, and rhythm and potential injury risks as you see it. Yeah, so I watch a lot of practice of the sport practice itself, and you know, coaches are saying, you know, my kids can't get into this position. They don't, you know, look good here. You know, and, and you hear coaches say, you know, get your hips down, you know, get your hips down, you know, fat. I mean, all these cues that they give. And so then I work it back to my training, like, how can I, and I'm not even saying that those cues are right, but how can I give these athletes a skill set to be able to get into their position for their sport to have an advantage against their opponent? And if they have that advantage, will that keep them out of injury risk? And you're right. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that go into injury. But if they know how to move, if they know how to kind of manage space against their opponent, and they know of different ways to get out of situations, whether it be somersaults, tumbling, Mm. you know, just the way they move their feet through dance and different things like this, when that time comes that they're in a prone position, will it give them a better opportunity, opportunity to get out of that? And to gain, you know, another advantage. So I just think that doing all this stuff is going to allow them to mitigate the risks that they face in practice and games. 
And then people always, uh, especially now, the kids are lazy. They are at home on their screens all day. They don't have PE, whatever. And so if they don't have that, then as coaches, at least on my mind, that we better give them every opportunity to stretch their boundary of their preparedness. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It is. Um, one thing I was going to say with that was the, yeah, the spatial recognition being also a really important. Yeah. And of course the rhythm isn't just because you have rhythm doesn't mean you're going to be injury proof. There's so many other things that go into it, but the, you were talking about the space. Like I remember, I believe it was Jeff Moyer when he was on here talking about a while ago, talking about how a lot of injury happens because athletes just they didn't make the right decision on the field and they got like caught in a bad position or you know, something like that it's like spatial awareness and you got just caught in a bad position because you couldn't you just didn't get ready in time and i think about different skills or things or practices you could expose athletes to and it makes me think about capoeira which i barely any athletes probably do but like capoeira is so interesting it's like basically dance fighting it's almost all that it's rhythm and space and like roll you i think there's a lot of rolling and tumbling or things like that Sometimes I feel like I've tried uh, such a wide variety of things in the training practice, but I mean, just learning how to fall too. I see people do training where they intentionally fall, roll, tumble. I mean, gymnastics is basically that. So, yeah. yeah. You know, kind of my thing is, you know, durability equals availability. And so, I, you know, I, I look at, man, I watch so many YouTube videos, but Andreas uh, Thorkelson, I believe, oh, yeah, is a jab in Norway. And his coach has a podcast with, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name, but, you know, he wanted to develop like, the, like a super athlete was Andreas. And so they use gymnastics to, you know, form, to really make him robust so that he wasn't injured. And for that sport with how, and, and you know, better than I do, I mean, the javelin is a, man, it's a hard sport on your body. So they use gymnastics to build him up and you watch his, some of those training videos. And I use a lot of the ideas, you know, walking on his hands. I mean, I purchased a set of parallel bars, gymnastics, parallel bars. So we have all our athletes now working on that for, you know, upper body, awesome. you know, ability and, you know, strength and movement, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, man, if this guy who was world champion, Olympic champion, goes back to a basic gymnastics routine to build his durability why shouldn't why mm -hmm. shouldn't i be doing that as a coach with my athletes i mean not some stupid you know just bench or sprint till they die but actually give them this durability that's going to allow them to play their sport hopefully you know injury free so I think there's a lot that can be taken from these great coaches and athletes that just is basic. Yeah, those parallel bars would be such a cool addition in the gym. Even just things like just even like hand walking, you know, along the length of it, I'm sure just like some or basic yeah. swings, things like that. I, I tried to do is <laughs> this is probably as far as I went with attempting to do some of that. But we had Kaiser jumpers at Cal. And if you if you could actually do like a tall dip, I, I think we we didn't have, or we had at one point, maybe had some glute hams that doubled as like some sort of dip type apparatus, but I ended up doing 
uh, like small scale, either tall dips or body swings between the Kaiser jumpers. So it's, (laughs) it's kind of funny. Like the Kaiser jumper is great for jumping, you know, great tool for jumping and explosion there. But then you got two side by side, you can jump up and do like kind of gymnastic type stuff on top of that, probably not even close to their intended use. But between those, the actually using them as intended and then doing gymnastics on top of them, I think we got a pretty good double out of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. And the athletes love it. I mean, Landon Evans, who's a really good friend of mine, when he was at Iowa, he, he told me, he's like, when the athletes come off the track or out of the gym and they're smiling, it's like, he, he's like, I know I've done my job. And then that, that little comment that he told me, like, has really stuck with me. Yeah. And so when I'm watching the athletes come out of our gymnastics hall or out of the weight room or off the track or whatever, and again, it doesn't always happen. They're not always smiling all the time. But I mean, that should be our goal with these young athletes. And because it's going to keep them coming back tomorrow, the next day, the next day. And so, like, all this gymnastics stuff, they just absolutely eat it up. Yeah. We had the, the smiling thing uh, ever since Rafe Kelly mentioned it probably four, five years ago on this podcast series. Like, that has always been in my brain for the warm ups. And, you know, be, be it games or we had a, a Calyx we had, we did have, we didn't have the dips. The Kaisers were the unofficial dip type stand where you could do small swinging motions. But the, um, the monkey, we had these monkey bars, like it was like a Sorenex huge rack system and monkey bars that went all the way through it. And we always did that stuff for warm ups. And, and people always, you always saw smiles on people's faces for that kind of thing. It was just a lot of fun. And I would sometimes too, like throw like pull-ups in, like do three, four monkey bars, then do a pull-up, do three monkey bars, do two pull-ups and the, you know, that kind of thing. And people would have, obviously a lot of athletes, like especially the swimmers, they enjoy pull-ups anyways, but it was so much fun to watch them do like a few monkey bars. You kind of get to rest, then do a few more. And that kind of thing really added to the dynamic of pre-existing exercises as well. And it was just a whole lot of fun. Yeah. I was going to ask you uh, as well, you know what, Mark, you mentioned, and I, I had this later, <laughs> maybe later in the show, but I, I did want to bring it up just because I thought it was such, it was such a good post. And, and you mentioned this is it, kids aren't, and I, I don't feel like it's like old curmudgeon saying this, but kids aren't the same. Like it is not the same these days as it used to be. I remember when I was living in Berkeley before I moved out to Ohio and like literally there was never kids out playing. Like I never saw kids out playing. And that was actually part of the reason I moved to the neighborhood I did when I was looking for houses over here is I saw a neighborhood and there was tons of kids out playing. I was like, oh, this is great. I definitely want my kids to grow up in an environment that's more like this. You had reposted, it was like these kids in Brazil playing soccer in the street and not even like a clean, nice, like it was like a, a kind of a T-junction of a street and they're like barefoot. And I'm like, and and uh, it was Rob Gray, I think, was talking about that constraints-led approach type learning. And sometimes I think to myself, I'm like, how much can we make up for this? You know, if kids aren't just getting out and just doing this, I know we can, you know, obviously we can do, we can do what we can and we try to do the best we can. One, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that, that video, like that part of development, if there's anything even in talking with like parents or anything, I'm just, I'm just curious how we can almost get to more of that. I'd take a lot, but um, yeah. yeah your, any of your thoughts on that type of um, yeah. development? So that post, and I think with training with a lot of different sports and a lot of different age groups, like those posts really resonate with me because I am dealing with young kids, like kids. And I remember growing up, I had 
you know, there was four boys in my family and, you know, we were always playing outside. And so then kids are sitting in school all day, you know, AP testing, ACT, everything is very geared towards, you know, high levels at some of these schools with these students. And then they don't get a lot of playtime. And then COVID was another thing, you know, mm-hmm. the lockdown and, you know, how do kids go through that? And that's something that as children, you and I didn't have to deal with. And so I look at that post and I think, oh my God, that was me with my brothers, mm-hmm. not soccer, but some game. Yeah, it's that was me. And, yeah. And that was me and my friends. And, you know, then I posted another one about uh, Rolandino and, you know, he grew up playing in bare feet. And his dad said, hey, you know, it's to improve your touch, but they just didn't have the money to buy shoes for him. And so, you know, and so I, I, I watched those videos and I think, how can we do that at the school I'm at? Because I have 100% control over mm-hmm. the environment. Okay, so I have spike ball. I have team handball. We have gymnastics that's outside. I have a balance beam. We have a gymnastics hall. So basically the first 15 to 30 minutes of each day is free play. That's awesome. They choose. I don't coach it. I, you know, I give them constraints of tracks over here. <laughs> That's the constraint. <laughs> uh, nice. You know, you know, be careful crossing the track, you know, go out and be kids, you know, be yourself. And then, you know, after 20 to 30 minutes, they start coming in and then we, you know, kind of start the, the formal session. And I think trying to put less constraints on them, being less coached. I mean, I bet through a training session, sometimes I I don't speak for total, maybe four or five minutes. So I let them, you know, do their thing, let them work out their problems, try stuff, be creative. Because then coaches want them to be creative on the field. Yeah. But they put constraints on them that aren't going to allow them. Parents put constraints on them. Hey, man, you're not doing this. I mean, I drive by where I live. There's a school and on the weekends they're uh they play flag football but it's organized by this company (laughs) and you see coach you know you see parents out there with you know their dry race boards and they're doing plays for the kids and i'm like okay well you're not developing anything it's you're putting so much constraint you're you're controlling everything yes And so I don't know. So the only way it's going to change is to take those off and let the kids do it on their own. And so then as a coach, like you have to pull back your ego to let them do it. So to me, man, I, at times I don't feel like a coach. I I feel like a, a parent that's letting them go out to play, that's bringing them in, that's kind of giving them some instructions, like when we're in the weight room. But even then, like an example on last Friday, like I had some seventh graders leading, like lifting stuff, like teaching their peers how to do certain lifts because the coaches want leaders too, right? Well, they're not going to learn how to lead without leading. So giving them these experiences that they normally wouldn't have because the coaches always want to control everything. That's and it. then that takes time to do it. But then when you hear the feedback from the parents, they're like, man, my kid loves coming to 
to train there. My the only reason my kid is going to school is because he can't wait to train. Like, okay, man, that's we then we have the buy-in. That's brilliant. I love that. To me, that is I mean, I, and I had a similar experience once I started implementing that in with uh, men's tennis was the main group that I did that with at Cal. And I think largely because that was the one that the coaches were most bought into that idea. And I think there was less expert tennis players just love to play. I mean, not that all athletes don't, but like compared to like, let's say swimming or distance running or something like tennis players, they love to play. And so that was just such a natural fit. And like, yeah, same thing. We'd roll out the ball. Hey, we're going to play volleyball for a warm up. All right, let's go. You know, and I had so much joy either watching or even sometimes I would play with them. And that there was so much joy in that. And you feel like you're saying, like when you were growing up and you were just going out and playing, you, you're sharing this experience where you're feeling the same way. And yeah, I, I, there's so much power there. There's a great paper that came out by Marco Sullivan. Uh, and he's, uh, I think he's teaching in Norway or he's a researcher in Norway. But he did a paper, him and three of his colleagues did a paper on uh, Pavel Datsu, the, the great hockey player. And, you know, economically, where Pavel grew up in Russia, like, you know, you only got a, you didn't get many sticks. Okay. So if you broke it, uh, you know, the hockey stick, you may not get one for a <laughs> while. Um, and they only had like one or two pucks, you know. And so when you were playing and, you know, skates were, you know, used and hard to come by. And so in this paper, Pavel talks about like his favorite thing was to wear felt boots on the ice uh, playing hockey. And he kind of talks about how it taught him to, you know, move at different speeds and mm. anticipate the opponent differently. And it, it's just a brilliant paper. I've, I've read it two or three times now. And so, so these economic constraints made him the player he was changed the game through his era and he made the best of his situation. So there's so many different things to performance that we may not even think about that drive it. And so that's why I think when people say, well, you know, I, I run a four five forty, or, you know, I got to get strong to do this. It's like, well, that's, I, I think that's such a narrow look at things. And when you start looking at some of these other populations, whether it's dance, whether it's alpine skiing, special operations, like human performance is so much more than that. Yeah, that's the thing that Dan John talks about a lot, a lot is like the art or basically the benefit of less, where if the best things that happen are sometimes when things are taken away from you and you have to find a way to make do. And that's where so much of our creativity, our our ingenuity, and kind of what makes us human, almost like that archetype, like Rocky, like that Rocky archetype, like Zach Evanesh yeah. is always, I, I would love to do a a a podcast or something with Zach talking about his favorite like 80s movies, training movies. It's just because we, yeah. th- there's so much there and it's, it's so easy today to just have more. Oh, I saw these drills on Instagram. I have these new pieces of training equipment. And yeah, it's not to, that's not to knock on any of that stuff. It's all great in its place, but it's, I think the problem is more so that that's it's more the greater context of how we look at it. We always look at it. Well, what more can I put in? <laughs> it's like, no, at some point you need to take things away and just make do and be creative. And then you can come back to more later and whatever, you know, you, you have. At least that's the way I think about it a lot. And and certainly these people who have these, I like that. Yeah. Economic or economic constraints, like where they, 
they had to make do, but it was their superpower. Like, that's so cool. And it's such a, like, it's an underdog story too, which makes it even more cool. Well, the thing about him was he would, because I, through the paper, you, you realize that he was special. Like, okay, so, so he had talent, but he would be, he, like, when they would select teams, he would make sure that he was on the team that had the less talent. So then he had to play mm-hmm. at a different level in order to win. You know, with the kids that I, that we'll do some games with, like I'll have them play football with their, you know, with their offhand. So, you know, most of them, it's always, they're always left-handed, you know, or, you know, don't catch things with these stupid receiver gloves, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like make it harder for you. Keep making it harder and harder and harder. So you get used to these difficult situations because, when it does get difficult and you haven't been exposed to anything but nice surroundings and all these, you know, cool gyms and whatever, it's like, hey, man, how are you going to respond to that? Yeah. So it, it makes me even think about or everything we were talking about makes me think about uh, I was just at, at a friend's house the other day. My wife and I went to a friend's house and all our kids are basically in a similar age group um, my kids are four and six and theirs are five and seven or two their younger ones are five and seven and we were in their backyard we we're just playing me and the other dad were playing soccer with the kids and it was just funny because there's like a huge hill and there's like all these puddles all over the place my four-year-old son just like eats it like right away in the puddle but i was just thinking about what what a beautiful constraint you know you have to run around the puddles you can go up the hill like you know the kids are all playing together talking about how they're going to play against us you know it's like i'm coaching them you know it's just like it's i really treasure those constraints you know or anything that's just like bare bones it's not perfect you know there's some weird stuff on the field and that's what that's to me that's so much about what it's all about but it's like yeah nowadays it's like you know sign up for maybe your club team and you get everything right away and it's all like pristine you're like you said too with like all the overcoaching that happens so so quickly too people are just coached up right away like and there's not space to you know be creative and Kind of just do typical human things, I would feel like more maybe is also a term for it. Yeah. I mean, there's a great, there's a cross country skier, he's the best in the world, Johannes Klebo from Norway. And he was on the smallest side when he was growing up. And um, I think he, his skiing was okay. And he, he's actually coached by his grandfather, who I think is 80 or 85 now, but they just worked on his technique 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 and he developed i think they call it the claybo running now like if you see him go up hills and everyone now is trying to emulate mm. it like he through this course of him being on the smallest side and his grandfather so they worked on these different techniques and then when he hit his growth spurt so then all this technical training once they kind of formed i mean he is unbelievable in this technique. Like he just blows his opponents away. And so that's, you know, another thing of people get so caught up and, oh yeah, man, I'm the best 12th, 12 year old. <laughs> I'm the best 10 year old. And where it's like, you need to be cognizant of all of these other factors that go into it and not biased, which is hard to do. I totally understand that. But just because somebody is smallish at 10, 11, 12, you need to give them just as much attention because, hey, you never know at the end of the 
end of that road, what's going to happen. And now like he watched this, I mean, I think he last year, like at the beginning of the year, he won like 90% of his, of the races. So I, there's so much to be learned from other sports outside of just like the basics that, yeah, that's why I love coaching just because I learned so much. Yeah. It's back to what we were talking about earlier too. Just the more exposure you get to studying sports and studying talent and studying the development of talent in those sports. It's, I think if we don't just take time to look at that, we can really get buried in minutia. And again, not, I, I do want to get to some of the more, the details of, of how you use technology and Omega Wave and things like that. I'm excited to talk yeah. about that as well here. But I, I like that base of it's just being so important just to look at some of those global pieces as well in long-term development. And it, it always, sometimes it does frustrate me. I find it interesting, like some of the, a lot of the shows I've done on this podcast, the ones that are more about long-term development, more about motor learning, for some reason, those are not the most popular ones. Not even close. In fact, I would say they're actually typically the less popular. But to me, I'm like, there is so much gold in all of these. And maybe it's just, maybe part of it is the feeling of, well, how do I apply this? And well, like you're, like you just said, like that, you apply it by allowing that time for athletes to be kids, to play games, to have not many constraints, to be creative and you know, I, I just think that there's so many ways that we can apply these things. I, I even think too about you had talked about these, yeah, these economic constraints. It would be kind of cool if someone came up with, I don't know, it might not be cool if you put it on paper, it would lose its magic, but it's like, here's things to take away from athletes in your next practice, you know, their next season, or I don't know, just here's instead of here's something to do, here's something not to do or not to have and, and, uh, or like lists of, of, uh, I don't know if they'd be deconstraints or, or whatnot, but it'd be interesting to talk more about, well, if you took away this, now what do they have to do? If you took away this, now what do they have to do? I just think that, yeah, there is, there is a lot there. And the more stories you hear of that, it, I just think that makes it even better. But as soon as you make a machine out of it, a system out of it, then it's not quite as cool. <laughs> it's not that, uh, you know, you don't have the, quite that, the story behind each athlete who does have that. Happen. Right. Right. And I think learning from a lot of different sports, I mean, even a lot of different, um, you know, the way people coach, communicate. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to change things up to give people, you know, joy in their training. Like even at the professional level, like there's a great paper or actually, so Niels Vanderpool, who was the five and 10K speed skating Olympic champion and broke two world records. He kind of revolutionized the way speed skating is, I think, going to be trained coming up. But he went on a 5-2 model where he trained hard for five days and then rest for two. But, you know, he was doing 30 hours a week on his bike, you know, during this some of those weeks and so you 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 read his paper you listen to him talk he's there's a great podcast with steven seiler and his coach and so you kind of listen to him like he wanted to have a normal life and that was the main basis why he did you know five two so i started doing that with some of my spec ops guys because <laughs> man they're so focused and you know, lo and behold, just that little change, they're like, oh my God, man, I'm doing things that I never did before. And, you know, my training is, you know, a lot funner during the week. And, you know, I'm, I have hobbies that I kind of gave up and, you know, and, and those jobs are so stressful that you need some, not just exercise, but you need some other ways to kind of unwind. 
And so I think learning about how to take some of this stuff and put it into these situations that are going to benefit the athlete that are beyond just sets and reps and, and, and more work. Cause at the end of the day, we're all kind of human beings mm-hmm. that have our own, you know, needs. Mark, something that you, that kind of goes with this, or at least the, I guess the basic <laughs> being a human, I guess, type thing. Uh, you had posted something about the benefits or maybe reposted the, about the benefits of multi-age, like like education or training, basically when you get kids of different ages together and they're playing together. And I was, it was, um, I was actually getting a Feldenkrais session from somebody who was really into like non-compulsory education, alternative educational models. And she was talking to me about how important and, and useful it is to have like an elementary education, like multi, instead of everyone being all in the same age all in the same class, like having kids of different ages, there's a lot of benefits of that because the older kids can teach the younger kids or they maybe they feel like they're more of a leader or something like that. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are for that. And uh, yeah, like like play and games and, and kind of like maybe what we've been talking about. Things are always so, all right, you're age eight, you're in this group, we're going to coach you, <laughs> you know, like thoughts on multi-age. Is that something you can do with the groups you're in as well? I'm not sure if you're, um, yeah. how you're getting your, your kids, but I'm curious if you're doing anything there. Yes. So, and that's a great question. And this kind of goes to to the, that we're trying to develop there. And, you know, it's joy for sport for all. And that's taken directly from, you know, the Norwegian sport model. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of their main thing that they want to do for everybody. And so then I've taken that concept and joy for sport for all means that we need to work together as all, and we need to play together. Mm. And so, but, you know, I started this back when I had my own training facility where the pro guys trained with the young guys. I mean, I had Super Bowl champion training with the 11 year old peewee baseball player. And it's just the way that we did it. It was just normal. And I, have taken that now with what we're doing at the school and it's even more integrated natural where they can learn from each other and i think that the young the older kids can benefit because okay i'm a role model now to these young kids they can kind of show how we enjoy it we work hard we but then we also play and we're nice to each other and being, you know, a great human being is also at the top of our, at the top of our pyramid. And you don't get that by being a jerk to everybody and having girls and boys and whomever within these training sessions. I, I have a softball, basketball, girls, basketball player who she is our, she's my gymnastics coach. So she Hmm. teaches the football guys. She teaches the baseball she is the coach. That's awesome. So they have to respect her. They, so she's gaining self-confidence. She's taking her mastery of gymnastics and, and lending it to the group to make us better. I have a, a girl who's a filmmaker, you know, visual art. She does all of our video and pictures now. So she's part of the group and it's all in-house. And it's me giving her the opportunity to explore her passion to then videotape our guys and gals within these trainings. So it's all this all-inclusive group that's working together to build this program to be the best in the world. 
And that's what I tell them. Now, again, nobody's going to give us an award. That's not what we're shooting for, but that's what we want to be. And so that's how I, that's how I do it. And I think it benefits the whole community as a whole. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was, I had something else on my question list too. I think it goes along with that. And then the Norwegian system, which I, you know, up until this conversation, actually, I was not familiar with at all. But it was um, Erling, I'm going to butcher his name, Erling uh, Holland's uh, youth coach. Yeah. It was like as his, yeah. his, the theme was as many as possible for as long as possible, as good as possible. And you had like some stats on how that group that started together as a youth, like just so much success within that group. I'm curious if you knew any more about that, the Norwegian system or the dynamics of that specific soccer group. Yeah, so that... <laughs> That research paper is just, I mean, it's its so good. And I can't remember the author, but I'll, I'll get it for yeah, you. Yeah, send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes for this too. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, so they talk about this like small little region and how they, you know, they had this youth team. And I think they started with 40 players, I think 39 boys and, and, and one girl. And, you know, they had one practice a week. I, I, I think they started at 10 or 11. Okay. And so they had one practice a week that was for like an hour. So there wasn't this pressure. And, you know, I think within the Norwegian youth system, like they don't keep score until they're 12 or 13. Wow. And I don't even know if you can travel. There's travel restrictions on where you can even travel to play. And then once they got to, I think, 14 or 15, the coach gave them um, the choice. You could, train two times a week or four times a week. But then it's, you know, for the not so serious recreational, I think they called it and on the developmental group. But then they still allowed those two groups to play together a couple times a week. And then they had a indoor facility built that was always open for the kids to come and play soccer, football, no adults, no nothing. So they could come on their own fruition. And so Again, kind of going back to what I'm trying to do at the school was giving these kids this opportunity to play, you know, on their own and develop their skill within their peer group. And then, you know, to make a long story short, at the end of it, I think four dropped out over the course of eight to 10 years. So, you know, started with 40, 36, ended up six of those athletes signed pro contracts. And now you have Erling Holland, who's arguably, you know, the the greatest footballer around. And again, I think his dad played professionally and there were some other things, you know, within that system that allowed them to grow, but it's a phenomenal study. And again, just goes to show you that a lot can be done with letting kids do it on their own. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that. I, and even just going back to what you've done with like that I, I guess um just a good word for it too is community like what's what's your talent within this group you teach the group like when i was um just a little bit up north of you over in washington state i was at rafe kelly's return of the source retreat and just a huge part of that you could just call it like a movement retreat of sorts but a lot of it was just based around community and we don't i don't think we think about we consider community dynamics nearly as much as it should be considered with those types of things and yeah, I, I, yeah, and that's part of. So I have a presentation that I give to parents and coaches and athletes, and you know, a big part of that is you know, 
because, you know, we want to build, and I think it goes back to, you know, as many as possible for as long as possible and as good as possible. And the only way that happens is, is if that, as a community, and it's not just like, you know, what are they bought into? And I think the reason that that works, that that worked there is they were in it for the long haul and, you know, they're in it for the kids. And that's why I give the athletes a huge voice because this is about them. And so, you know, how can we build something that when the fourth or fifth grader comes in that they want to be a part of until they're out of high school? And then as, and again, I've only been doing this for three years, but as they go through their adult life and they have kids, are those, you know, do they want their kids to then come back within that system that we developed? So I should develop a system that when I die is still intact to sustain itself because we did it for the athlete. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about, you know, the parent. It was about what we were developing as a community. So it was organically always going. So that's, and that's why I'm so passionate about giving the kids such a big voice in this because it's for them. Yeah. I love that. Uh, let's uh, switch gears just slightly in the sense of, uh, I know I've, I read an article, I believe it was yours a while ago talking about, and I think this has been a common theme of a lot of podcasts I've done, but basically delaying the, in, the inclusion of really intensive training methods. Like, uh, mm -hmm. like it's probably really easy to say, all right, well, you know, you're, 14 or 15 years old, years old, let's throw some depth jumps in your program so you can jump higher, right? And you were talking about delaying that training stimulus as long as you could. Basically, if athletes were still making progress, well, we're good. We don't, we don't need to do this yet. I'm just curious for you to expand a little bit on when do you include like key training stimuli as an athlete grows and matures? Like what are some landmarks that you look at in terms of, okay, now it's, I mean, be it like heavier lifting plyometrics that are more intensive versus just playing the sport explosively, things like that. Curious what you look at for that aspect of development. Yeah. So, and you know, man, it's, it's changed, you know, quite a bit over the years, but when looking at the development, you know, number one, I look at what's their training age. You know, you may have a talented basketball player, but like he's never set foot in the weight room. He, he could be a junior or senior. So do we need to regress him to the point of a 12-year-old on the, you know, on the developmental side? But then you look at the sport of basketball, say, itself, and, well, okay, they're probably already doing a lot of depth jumps just naturally from you know, jumping and, and uh, you know, just the game and the practice and all that itself. So are they already getting that exposure and okay, is it okay to even start them off almost immediately with that type of training? And so there's a couple things I look at when I'm intensifying training. One is their ability to adapt to it through heart rate variability. So, you know, how do they look after just even extensive training sessions? Like, is that blowing them up? You know, if you have a 16, 17 year old high school kid that's a high performer in the classroom, let's take. So he's got that stress. Nutrition, how is that? You know, is he getting two meals a day that consists of 
you know, 10 donuts and a burrito, you know, is he five hours of sleep? So, you know, people say they're great athletes, maybe on the field, but that doesn't mean that with the work that I want to give them, they're even ready to do. So there has to be some physiological markers that we set that they have to check off to be able to even do this mm. intensive buying training. You know, what's their resting heart rate? Well, if they have a resting heart rate of 75 to 80, we need to get that down through some extensive modes. We need to build their fitness so they can withstand what we want to give them later on. You know, number two is, you know, strength levels. I don't really go on, do they have to squat two times their body weight to do depth jumps? You know, you can do a good depth jump and you know this probably better. I mean, you can do one from a 12 inch box, right? So you're not going to need a whole hell of a lot of strength to do that. So, you know, what is their force velocity profile that we're looking at as well? You know, where do they stand there? And then actually, what do they need? Are depth jumps even a requirement for them now? I think also coaches at the high school level, it's kind of crazy. Like all this velocity-based training, it's all output-driven, which I get to a certain point. But your team sport, man, you need some biological development of your hormonal system, of your cardiac system, of, you know, the mitochondria, both, you know, the slow and the fast-twitch fibers. You know, how can you handle stress? which is a totally different training modality. So I can get guys powerful and fast. That's not an issue. How do I build their reserves to withstand a three-hour practice or a two-hour game and then recover and come back a week later? Yeah, it, it fits kind of with the, it's easy to do more, right? You already got athletes already being explosive. Well, it's easy to do more. Well, let's just do more explosive stuff. You know, you could, you could infinitely add explosive things into the mix, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the best thing for them. I, you know, I, I did want to actually dig more into the aerobic and the resting heart rate. Cause that's something I actually, through all these podcasts, 350, some of them or whatever, I haven't gotten really far into that, that aerobic and capacity oriented base. And I think you know, the pendulums always swing, right? And I think there has been, and maybe there still is that, you know, oh, well, don't do much, too much cardio. It's going to kill your, you know, explosive gains. And yeah, sure. If you go train like a half marathon or a 5k, yeah, it's, <laughs> you're not going to, it's not going to be that great for you, but that doesn't mean there's a lot of other ways that you can do it that can really genuinely make a difference. And I even think about even my own training history, as well as what I've observed through coaching track and something like basketball, I've found to be a profoundly good base for something like high jump. And I think a huge part of it is all the explosive cuts and jumps and all every explosive movement within the game itself. But I also look at, just like we were talking about with the music, when you play basketball, it desensitizes you to how hard you're actually working. And I could go out and run you know, six 200s for track or eight 200s. And if you run with buddies, that makes it a little bit better in terms of the capacity. But I think I was underestimated actually how much capacity uh, from like that hormonal or mitochondrial perspective playing, playing basketball was for me. And then for the athletes as well that I observed who would play and do high jump or whatever, people who came off a basketball season or even athletes who are playing intramural basketball during indoor track who weren't supposed to be, but I always noticed those kids actually did really darn good, all things considered. So I I didn't really yell at him for it, but yeah, I, I just I I'd like to get more into your take on 
on on that. So you said that there's the obviously that heart rate seventy five to yeah. eighty. At, can you talk a little bit more about that and the extensive methods that you'll put, and just really trying to make sure that they can recover? I'd love to get more into that. So I think first off, like you know, what's the profile? So you know, of a basketball player, for example, like you know, what do these guys look like from a physiological standpoint? You know, typically resting heart rates can be anywhere from like forty to fifty five. Okay, so okay, so let's just go with that. So that's a baseline. And so you come in and I test you. And you're 70, for example. And that's what kind of, it does bother me. People say, well, you know, you don't need aerobic training for basketball or football. It's like, okay, you don't understand that A, you do, but B, the why. The why is based on the principle of cardiac development and the autonomic nervous system. For me, that's one of the principles that I was taught by Val. So, Cardio or aerobic is for the autonomic nervous system, first and foremost. So if you have a poor functioning, if you're always sympathetic driven at rest, okay, you're not going to perform well. You're not going to always recover well. So I look at it more of, okay, we're going to build that aerobic or cardiac system to improve your autonomic function. So you can recover better from harder work. That's what bugs me when people say, well, we, you know, we get it through the sport itself. We get the conditioning through the sport itself. There may be some of that, but the sustained effort over uh, a two-hour practice where you're standing, say, 60, 70% of the time, let's say American football, like you're not getting the adaptation for that system. You're, you're just not going to get it. So number one, you have to have a profile. You have to know what the norm is. You have to be able to test it. And then you have to have a field test to test it. So like with the basketball players, you know, there's a 30-15 submaximal test that Martin Boucher, Boucher, I think, he's the one that developed it, that we use. You know, there's other sports-specific tests that you can use to determine the actual fitness for that sport. And then you back it, then you just backfill the training to get them to where the norm should be for that sport. And aerobic training can be, you can be on a bike, you know, it can be in a swimming pool. You know, Randy talked mm-hmm. about, you know, Huntington talked about all the stuff that he does in the pool with his, you know, sprint athletes. You can do general strength circuits. I mean, put a heart rate monitor on some of these kids or a moxie monitor and see how a you know, a pillar or a pedestal drives, you know, that cardiac system. In fact, some of it may be too hard to, you know, so, you know, you could do tempo runs. You can do, for some guys, walking on a treadmill, gymnastics. That's why I like the long extended warmups with our kids because it's going to give them that aerobic stimulus because they're constantly moving. Yeah. And it's play that you and I would have gotten as youngsters that, you know, we get now maybe probably four to five hours a week of that type of work through non-program work. So there's a lot of different ways that you can get it. And then you have to test the athlete to see if it's improving. So to say they're fit, okay, how are you judging that? 
Yeah, I, lo- I love the idea of getting that through general means in the warm up. I think, yeah, in fact, like, like I said, like just <laughs> if we think about cardio, maybe it's just a cultural thing. You think about cardio, you think of running on the treadmill or something. Yeah, of course, that's probably not the ideal way to get cardio. It's a way, but if you could do it doing a lot of dynamic general means that are differing and more like circuit training and strengthening different parts of the body, like that seems like a great way to get that piece of it. Uh, I know when I would have um, tennis, if we played basketball as a warm up for lifting, those guys, I think it, I didn't have hurry monitors on them, but I bet you if we did, they would have had higher heart rates and work outputs than a lot of their actual tennis playing <laughs> uh, or even some of the sprint conditioning that we did. You know, it would have been, it's really substantial. Yeah. And then like when you look at power sports and, you know, there's people say there's not an aerobic component to it, which, you know, I get that. But within the training, there there might be. And so why not figure out ways to do zone zero or zone one easy training to build that durability? Because I see it with track athletes in high school. They they have these injuries that we never see in our group. And we train like super hard at times, but we don't have hamstring tendonitis you know, some of these weird things, it's like, okay, why, if you're running a hundred meters, why does said athlete have hamstring tendonitis? Why are they injured like that? You know, why the common occurrence for all these shin splints, you know? So I constantly think of that. I look at that. I look at their work rate, what they're doing. And I try to think, okay, how can we stay out of that? And, you know, Landon Evans, who is a big mentor of mine, and I, you know, he talks about zone zero a lot. Him and I will have these conversations and, you know, just doing these little things throughout the course of a workout. Uh, and if you do them day after day after day, year after year after year, you know, then when these athletes get older, 17, 18, and they have this huge base of very easy general training where now they can withstand some of these higher workloads with good coaching. That's the other thing I think people forget about these injuries happen. Oh, because they're undertrained. I would also say that it's poor coaching delivers a lot of it as well. Hmm. What's the, what is the zone zero? Uh, can you go more into that? It'd be like walking. It'd be like doing, you know, all these different ankle hops, you know, walking around. I mean, because like when we're young and playing, you sprint, you know, you you tag your friend and then you go hide in the bushes and, (laughs) you know, you're just waiting there. You're talking, you're being quiet. And there are these built in natural rest periods. I think where athletes get in issues with injuries is now coaches begin applying these rest periods that are sometimes just so detrimental to their overall growth of the athlete. And then they get hurt. What about the rest period specifically? Sorry if I'm not following that well enough. I, I too short, like or for what type of workout too short, too long? Some of them are short. And then the density of that work just becomes so overwhelming to their system that they break and they never mm. go back to say, why did they break? Randy, I don't know if he was, it was on, I think it was on your podcast where he talks about building that weekly density Mm. and he would do it in the swimming pool with his guys. 
because it you know it, it's it's unloading them, but they're getting the work in. So that's why we have a lot of our football players ride the bike, you know, because you have 250, 60 pound, 200, 200 pound guys doing, you know, a lot of tempo work. It's going to break them down, you know, I've found. So I need to figure out ways to take the load off them, but still build that density of work where then I can begin to see the changes on, you know, the adaptations that I'm looking for through HRV and you know, all the other testing that we're doing. Yeah. It, it's interesting to think of it too. And I will say, I, I love the assault bike. I've definitely warmed up to that more and more having people like Kyle Wall, Angus Bradley on the show talking about it. And it is like, you think, I think about too, a lot of, with the cardio thing. It's not so much, you know, we talk about oh, cardio will kill your gains or something or strength or speed. And it's like, yeah, if you do your sport, that should be speed as cardio, then yeah. But if you just do cardio and it's like in the pool or it's unloaded on the assault bike or it's dynamic, it's a totally different story. And uh, yeah, ever since those podcasts with Randy, a lot of my online clients, if they have a pool and they're in an output sport like track and field, they're definitely doing tempo in the pool. Like, And I remember doing that back when I was at Wilmington College, they had a pool and I thought about the things that, you know, it's funny because that college didn't have a lot. <laughs> like talking about having less, they had a lot less in terms of indoor right. facilities. But they had a pool and, you know, like just making use of that was a really big thing for, you know, and if, you know, going back, I don't think I valued it as much as I, I do now, the fact that we had that. And so, yeah, that, that's a, a great place for that cardio conditioning. And I, I just like swimming more now. Like I'll actually swim for my tempo now because I, I had the opportunity to learn from, for me personally, if I get a chance, just I was able to learn swimming strokes from some of the volunteer assistants back when I was at Cal. And so I actually like, like trying to figure out how to swim too. And I was like, well, this is a good cardio and uh, it's better doing it here than, <laughs> than pounding the track if I want to be fast. So that was always a great experience. Right. Absolutely. Mark, real quick before we close this out. So, you know, you had mentioned the resting heart rate of 75 to 80. Like, so yeah. that indicate. I'm just curious, like getting into a little bit of the details of this. And I think maybe this, this might be a little bit too... We might not have time to get really thoroughly into the Omega Wave portion and all those. Maybe we can save that for another time. But I would sure. love to get a little bit into, so basically, if if an athlete is, you know, if people just have heart rate and they all, oh, that's all they have to work off of, yeah. I mean, is there is there a dividing line where resting heart rate, you're pretty, like, definitively in more of a resting sympathetic state? Or is that something you need an Omega Wave to really uh, fully hash out? Yeah, I think that's something you need some type of HRV tool to look deeper into because, for example, you know, you could have a low resting heart rate, but then it could be caused by overtraining. Mm. Like, you know, you, you could be so parasympathetic overreaching. Uh, so, you know, while there's, you know, markers that I look for within certain sports, then to dig deeper, it's like, okay, your norm is say 45 to 55. So that's where you normally are. But then if you're way lower than that or way higher than that, what's causing it? Are you coming down with an illness? Are you overtrained? Did you have poor sleep last night? Like if you have a family, did the baby wait? Like, you know, there's a lot of other context that goes into, you know, why it's there. But if you're looking at this data all the time, yeah, I mean, if you have baselines, then you can say, okay, if you're over and above that for an extended period of time, let's look deeper into it. That's why HRV is great. Like, okay, you're out of these norms now. Why? So then it allows me to ask 
better, deeper and better questions to the athlete to learn more of, oh, yeah, man, you know, I have this AP economics test, you know, this week and man, I'm super stressed. And okay, so that's it. And if you're more sympathetic overreaching, then we're going to change the recovery modalities. If you're more parasympathetic, we're going to change the way that we train you. So then it just allows more individualization for, you know, the training structure. Because if you're sympathetic overreaching, like you're not going to go out and do a ton of sprints, Mm -hmm. you know, at at full gas, you know, you're going to, you want to get back to that homeostasis of, okay, let's do some easy training and let's, you know, try to modify your nutrition maybe to see if that helps. And whereas parasympathetic, yeah, man, maybe we're going to do some high intensive stuff, but it's going to be extremely low volume to kind of kickstart the sympathetic nervous system. So it's all this, you know, this yin and this yang throughout. It's kind of life, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah. So maybe I'm getting a little bit into the HRA. I'm trying to figure out exactly where I want to go with this, staying in the scope a little bit more of developmental chat. But let me ask you this, and I'm sure we don't have time to go through every single every single sport with the protocol in the sense of uh, what their general cardio ability or aerobic ability should be. But I am curious your take on, let's just say for more of the speed end of the speed power end of the spectrum, let's say football or even track like a sprinter, but maybe like a football type person where it's mostly power based more, more than like, let's say soccer, like a continual field uh-huh. sport. What, like, what's the aerobic threshold for something like that? Like where should they generally be? So, you know, they have enough to recover be adequately recovering from the speed and power work they're doing yeah so like right now i would say on average the high school guys that are testing the football players like their average heart rate is probably like 52 and i have some i have one kid that's like 45 Mm. and you know in the preseason like our tempo work we were and i'm including bike on this we would hit anywhere from 5,000 to 8,000 yards of volume because they need to be able to recover from these repeated bouts, not only in the game, but the practice. That's why GPS can inform you of how much yardage they're covering of different running velocities and why they need big aerobic base. So, you know, if they can hit five to 7,000 yards a week consistently, have a resting heart rate of anywhere, say 45 to, you know, 60, because some of the linemen are just bigger guys, you know, so they're going to have, you know, maybe a higher resting heart rate. And there's different work that we do in the weight room to even facilitate the aerobic system even more through, you know, oxidative work of the slow fibers. So not only are we doing it through running, but then we're also doing it through weightlifting. So tempo squats of four seconds total each rep, which is based off the work of Viktor Selyanov. So then, and then also the fast fiber oxidative, you know, with hill sprints. So less than five seconds with a 60 second recovery in the off season. As it gets closer to the season, we'll drop that to 30 seconds because that's kind of, you know, a no huddle offense, kind of what they work on. And we have guys doing 50 reps of that in a session and they're, you know, their heart rates don't get over, you know, 150. So it's non-specific, specific work. And then then the work at the end of the season, at the end of preseason moves into pads, game-specific work for conditioning. 
but you know you have to have a, a good aerobic system not only for the game but to recover from it in between plays and then when you go home at night and sleep you have to recover you have to be able to sleep well yeah i think it is funny like as soon as you say i must call it like the s word slow twitch <laughs> like because i know that it is it is kind of funny i think we hear that i remember even when i was very first learning about training when i was like 15 reading this book called the science of jumping and talks about fast and slow twitch muscles and it's like oh can't get can't do any slow twitch and it's i think that we're almost sometimes so afraid of it we don't realize that you can do that kind of it's like yin and yang you do some yin you do some yang but ultimately you're getting the highest exposure of the yang stuff if you're football or track like that's your main exposure but it and it and if football is a sport of, you know, speed less than anaerobic threshold, you need both slow and fast. And if they have a higher, I mean, if, if, if they have a good aerobic base, they're not going to tap into those glycolytic tissues so fast. So mm -hmm. then fatigue is delayed. And so, you know, the more that you can, and, you know, you can increase speed of, I think, 20% by working, you know, the slow fibers you're gonna have a better relaxation phase on the you know for sprinting so better relaxation is going to equal faster times and you know you're not going to tap into this stuff so soon so we do it with both upper and lower body because linemen need that aerobic capacity of the upper body which people don't think of but with all the punching and everything like you better have a high aerobic zone on your upper body so kind of have to look at the demands and then train it yeah, I'm sure this goes without saying, but, and I don't know if you, there was like a period of time where you didn't do as much aerobic work or, or whatnot or any way to compare, but is there any way of comparing like, like even looking at basic fast switch outputs, like standing broad, standing triple, you know, 30 meter, 40 yard dash with or without the inclusion of the aerobic work? Do you have any sort of anecdotes that would maybe, um, you know, help people there? I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, just from my own perspective. No, and that's, yeah, and that's, and that's why we test. So, God, man, we've been doing aerobic work for a long time, so I can't say that doing it or not doing it is good or bad. What I can say is that we did triple jump, two-legged triple jump here a couple weeks ago, and one of our athletes, well, all of them, but one of them improved his standing triple from 28.11 to 30.5. And he was doing three times a week of this oxidative work, plus, you know, 5,000 yards of tempo a week. And he's 215 pounds. Wow. And resting heart rate is like, it was 46 this morning. Nice. So, <laughs> so what I can say is that it's not hurting them. And then subjectively, what I can say when these guys sprint is they're like, oh my God, I feel so fast. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, the only thing I could think of from that perspective is like, cause I'm trying to dig up anecdotes. I, I, I guess I think of when I was in college doing you know, high jump and triple jump and javelin and it was hurdles for a little bit, but my resting heart was pretty darn low. It's like 45, low 40s if I really let myself chill out. And, you know, obviously my training was recovery was way better back then, but the, I guess you could say the cardio I was getting was like in the summer I worked moving. So just like moving furniture, which is basically just like GPP. It's like carrying heavy stuff around up and down the stairs. And, but it's not, I think the key was just, it wasn't distance running <laughs> for me or even like right. when I was in 
track like i do like you would do like eight by 200 five by 300 like stuff like that and that was that was fine you have circuits longer warm-ups circuits things like that we did like circuits this my coach called them scramble circuits our team would run around the field or around the the campus and we jog like 200 meters and then we'd go do push-ups and whoever back to autonomy the coach would ask hey so-and-so how many push-ups are we gonna do so-and-so would be like 20 and we'd all do 20 you know and we just do that for like 30 or 40 minutes and so it's not like but in other times in my life when i i remember one time i just was taking kind of a break from training age i don't know 24 i was like i'll just do some running for a little while i I wasn't putting in a lot of running i don't know maybe like 15 20 miles a week 20 miles a week but i remember and i I wasn't doing anything else though no strength nothing else i went to jump after like i don't know month and a half two months of doing that and like literally lost eight inches on my jump it was a train wreck like (laughs) it was for me, that got destroyed by that. So, but it's just, it just kind of makes me think of like the balance. Like, how do you get this aerobic work? And it is important to recover. And I, and I feel it too. If I'm not aerobically good, my recovery from my sprint sessions, from my heavier lift or power lift type sessions is substantially worse, especially the sprint stuff. I feel like gets so much worse if my aerobic system is suffering. So it's just always thinking of creative, good ways to kind of keep that rolling pretty well. Well, I look at cross-country skiers and um, like there's a sport, it's called distance skiing, you know, where these guys will ski, you know, 50 to 90K and, you know, there's pros that do it. And so, but you look at their strength training and it's heavy, like triples and doubles and, and they're strong, you know, eat, you know, their, their relative strength is through the roof. So they're not doing a bunch of high rep stuff. They're doing low reps, you know, that's going to get them strong but they still keep up their endurance and then you watch them I've, some of them post their like hurdle jumping and it's like oh my god man you're mm-hmm. you're explosive too so put everything in context it's like if these extreme endurance guys are doing this and are still good on the endurance side why can't power speed athletes be good at that and then have a good aerobic side so it's just gonna i think it just overall just makes them i mean some of these special ops guys that I have training, like the one guy is like a, what he's a five, he ran a 555 mile. He weighs 230 pounds. He can deadlift like 450, you know, resting heart rate of like 35 or something like that. So to think that you're going to all of a sudden lose your strength or speed or power through doing this stuff is just not true. Yeah. Well, hey, I think that's a good place to drop off there. I know we we didn't get super into the nuts and bolts of weekly training sessions, uh, but maybe it'll make for a good podcast down the road. I, I really enjoyed the things we covered today, Mark, and it was great having you on. Is there any, um, if you have any closing thoughts or where people can reach you at, you know, if you have any resources for folks, if you want to let anybody know before we click the record button here. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. God, I don't, I don't remember what my Twitter what my Twitter name is, uh, Instagram, Mark PTC. Hold on. What, what's my Twitter? Oh, results underscore period on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, closing thoughts. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're working with young athletes, I think just, you know, kind of expanding your, you know, knowledge with some of these people like athletic skills model and, and, um, you know, kind of looking what the Norwegians and, mm. you know, even like the Swedes have done with, you know, athletic development and, you know, just trying to expand your, your learning 
And then, you know, listen to a lot of the podcasts that you have on Randy and some of these other great guests that you've had on. I mean, there's just so much information out there that is so good that if you just keep kind of digging at it, it'll pop up and then you can apply it with your athletes. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much again for being on, Mark. It was really great having you. Thanks again, Joel. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. It was great having you here and we'll see you next week.